One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Amanda Littman. I'm Fashikir. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This week, we're going to do things a little differently. Instead of answering one big question in politics, we're going to have a little bit of an open-ended conversation about the role of billionaires in democratic politics with Teddy Schleifer, who is a senior reporter covering money and influence at Recode. But before we get into the conversation with Teddy, which I am super amped about, Let's talk just a little bit. I want to know, Faz, what is the number one political issue or, I guess, issue writ large that's been on your mind this week? Let me start it this way, Amanda. Have you been vaccinated? I have been. Double shots, all done. Double shots. Congratulations. You two weeks post second shot? I am. I am fully street legal. Are you wearing a mask? Um, currently in my home, no. When I'm out in public in crowded spaces or indoors, yes. But when I walk the dog on the street, no. And why are you still wearing a mask in certain instances? Because I want to be thoughtful about what other people's risk um, level is and trying to like socialize a good environment. But it's not for my own concern or safety. I trust the science. I'm good. So that's the political issue on my mind, Mm -hmm. right? Is the ethics (laughs) and science of wearing the mask, particularly in a vaccinated society, as we get closer to what is deemed to be by science community, a herd immunity, where more more and more people get there. In my mind, politically, the reason this is important is that when we get vaccinated, it's going to be important to show that society returns to normal. Mm -hmm. And the political potency, the power of Biden having returned society to normal is not merely that I got shots in the arm, right? I mean, we want shots in the arm. That's great. But we want to live free. Mm -hmm. We want to feel like that damn mask is gone. And I think there is a power to it. And I've been reflecting on this because in my mind, there becomes a policy determination, a political determination at some point of like, do you just start dropping mask mandates? And you see Republicans starting to have this, you know, they want to push. They will, oh, yeah, but drop the mask mandate. And I, I kind of, you know, I, and there's a time coming up soon, I think, that's important to send the message that, A, get the vaccine so you can be like us. You can drop the mask. There's a benefit out there for those of you who've done it, are going through it. Let's give you the benefits, not that you continue to live vaccinated and walk, mm-hmm. walk around in crowded spaces with masks. So that's on my mind, actually, of late. You know, I don't think we're there yet. We're close. We're close. Like maybe in about a month or so, I think we'll be at a place where there's enough people where like it really is. If you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, it's on you. And Yeah. And it's important, I think, yeah. that we hopefully get there. So, Amanda, what's on your mind? Oh, Faz, on my mind is the New York City mayoral election. I am so amped up about this race. So earlier this week, the New York Times released their endorsements. Sort of a big surprise of what is 
um, of Catherine Garcia, who is the former sanitation worker. Uh, she was a food czar. Um, she's had various number of jobs throughout New York City government. She's been basically like a bureaucrat for the last 20 years. And the Times endorsed her in a big surprise. We're still out six weeks out from election day. It's a very wide open primary. We're about to have the, what is the sort of most competitive mayoral election, at least since I've moved to New York City. And right now, Andrew Yang is leading in all of the polls, second only to Eric Adams, who is a former cop um, and pretty deeply conservative. Andrew Yang, you know, sort of all over the place ideologically, kind of a cheerleader for New York City. All that sets the context in which they've all been saying there is this one woman in the running in the race, Catherine Garcia, that they would all love to hire. Like Andrew Yang straight up said in a profile of New York Magazine this week, you know, when I'm mayor, I'm going to hire Catherine Garcia to be my second in command. I'm going to make sure she runs the city. And yet each one of them to a T has affirmed that she can't win. So there's no point in engaging. I have found myself going from deeply undecided, which is a place I'd never been in in an election, to really hyped up for this hyper competent woman who seems to carry the most important trait for me in this election, which is I think she will make Cuomo eat shit for breakfast. And that to, I, that to I, me is so important. It's the only thing that matters is can you make Cuomo eat shit for breakfast? <laughs> I have not followed this race at all. So I have from afar felt that it seems like Andrew Yang is doing probably better than I expected and maintaining that uh, for a longer than I expected as well. But w- what's going on there from your well, perspective? Well, it's a really complicated election because it's the first time New York City is using ranked choice voting in their city elections. So essentially, the person who wins is going to have to get the most ones, twos, and threes across the stack ranking. It's a very short way of explaining this. So you don't want to be a polarizing figure like who has a base of ones, but then a lot of people dislike you. You want to be a candidate who can persuade a lot of people to yeah. like you and put you in their top one or it's two. It's a really three. interesting wrinkle into this that I'm excited to see how it plays out. But the Times endorsement of Garcia made me feel like I could finally um, come into the open as a proud member of Garcia gang, rise up, and and to see like what happens in this incredible municipal election that is so, so impactful on 8 million people's lives in the city of New York, but also more broadly on what cities can do to make people's lives better. You know, what New York City does becomes in many places a model for both other cities and also the state and federal government and worldwide. But I'm just, I'm all, I'm amped. I'm ready for the New York City mayoral election. I'm excited to vote. I'm excited to stack rank. I think it's gonna be really fun. June 22nd for all of you out there. Uh, We'll all be paying attention in New York City. Um, And speaking of New York City, I don't know if you saw this last weekend, uh, Saturday Night Live from New York featuring Elon Musk, a billionaire on uh, TV. And so that got us thinking about talking about billionaires. And we're going to have a nice conversation with Teddy about billionaires in American society. Faz, as we go into a conversation about the role of billionaires in politics, you uh, previously managed Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in 2020, a campaign that notoriously made being anti-billionaire a big part of both your platform as well as the way you literally ran the campaign. I'm wondering if you can reflect a little on on that experience and the philosophy behind it. Obviously, there's a lot of reason to believe <laughs> that billionaires and their economic power in its own right is is concerning. But then when you couple it with political power over America's economy and America's political system, it, many in the progress movement, I believe it, it, tend to think that billionaires are a systemic failure of American policymaking, that you could allow somebody to accrue that much wealth in such a short period of time there's a problem with the taxation system. There's a problem with markets that somebody can mm-hmm. corner that much and 
have that much power over a system. It's it's a descent into oligarchy, right? Where very very few small numbers of people control the masses, and that that was obviously what we warned about. And my perspective and take on it is that in order to have a democracy, we cannot have more and more billionaires with that much immense wealth and power, and that you have to kind of take the reins of regulating them, taxing them, and essentially putting them in their place. Mm -hmm. I know you're out there trying to build up an organization, run for something that helps get progressives elected all around the country, particularly down ticket. And I'm sure you face this tension of Mm -hmm. taking on wealth in, in our society, taking on billionaires, but also seeking to court them so that you can have the funds to build an organization that's long lasting. And oftentimes the only amount of money that's available will often come from elite donors who are you know, billionaires or descendants thereof. What's your take on how we treat the very, very wealthy in our society? Well, I come at this from a very particular perspective in that up until four and a half years ago, my entire career was built on grassroots fundraising. And I fundamentally believe in the power that $1 and $5 and $10 donations can have on political campaigns. Then I started an organization, which is much harder than a candidate to raise grassroots money for. And then I started having a payroll in which I have to pay people. The strategies that we run as political operatives and organizations are often not driven by what we think is the right thing to do, but what we can get funding for. And that really sucks. And I should say, full transparency, like this is a really hard and in some ways kind of risky conversation for me to have because many of the people who I were going to talk about today have given run for something many and have been supportive of our work. And I have been tried to be as transparent with them as possible about how I feel about this entire exercise. And I think it's really important to call out the deficiencies in the Democratic donor class and the broader donor class and to point out the ways in which our funding structures are failing our broader goals in everything from the the literal tactics and strategies that we're funding to, as you point out really well, the policies that we're supporting. There's always tension here. And to not talk about it doesn't make it go away. So I'm really glad we're having this conversation. I'm also a little scared I might get in trouble for this conversation. So if you're listening, I want to chip in to cover my ass. I appreciate it. But I do think it's worth having anyway. All right. We are going to take just a quick ad break. But when we get back, our conversation with Teddy Schleifer from Recode. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Teddy, welcome to the Battleground Podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell the audience who you are and what you cover? 
Sure. So my name is uh, Teddy Schleifer. I'm a reporter here at Recode, which is part of Vox.com. And I cover billionaires. I cover inequality through the lens of the very rich. And the same way there are reporters out there who cover inequality through the lens of the poor, right? Like, what's it like to be poor in America? What are the causes of poverty? How hard is your life to be low income? Not to be too high-minded about it, but I think it's important for there to be folks who cover the very wealthy and to understand what do they do with their money? How political are they? Do they feel persecuted? Do they sit around in cash all day or where is their money really parked? You know, I think there needs to be like serious journalistic scrutiny on rich people, not in like a pitchforky way, but in just a what are the facts about these folks and how do they live their lives? <laughs> Let's talk about them a little bit. Hit me. So I think by my count, what, there's roughly 700 uh, probably in America, so probably maybe a little bit under. Billionaires. Yeah, 700 billionaires. Sure. And what, maybe 2,800 or so worldwide? Does that sound right? Yeah, Teddy? I think so. Yeah. I'll pull my phone list and check and give them accounts. <laughs> yeah. As you know, we were a campaign that raised concern over billionaires. I think oftentimes for the American public, it's hard to access what the hell is a billionaire. Mm -hmm. Maybe sometimes conceive of a million, maybe 10 million, now 100 million, wait, 10 times 100 million. Okay, great. Yeah. In wealth, right? In wealth, not just uh, generating a business that uh, has a billion dollars, but really in wealth. So you look at some of those billionaires, obviously the top 10 is people like what? You know, Amazon's, uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, Gates from Microsoft, Elon Musk from Tesla. You got the Walton family up there. You got Berkshire Hathaway's, uh, Warren Buffett and others, right? At the very top of the list. And I guess the question that we could start this off with, Teddy, is how does one become a billionaire? There's two main routes to becoming a billionaire. There's the lucky way, which is you are the child of a billionaire. Right. The more American dream version of how to become a billionaire is by building something that is worth a lot of money and being the owner of that company. And then you, if you own 10% of Amazon, you can be worth $200 billion. Yes, but I'm going to pause there because it's not simply owning. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of successful businesses that you know you can do well and have a few million dollars in profit. To become a billionaire, Teddy, like is a different ballgame. Mm -hmm. What have you done to the market in order to get to billions? Sure. I think lots of the discussion about billionaires essentially boils down to a, a conversation about what type of rule should govern capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, it really boils down to a question about like trillion dollar companies in lots of ways. Obviously, you could have a perfectly legitimate trillion dollar company and then just tax people in a way that they are then no longer billionaires. But I find in the debate about the legitimacy of billionaires largely boils down to what type of corporate actions are legitimate, ethical, and moral, which is obviously a more fundamental question than like, is Jeff Bezos a good person or a bad person? You know, I'm obviously biased with a perspective, which is that they got to their wealth because they cornered markets, became monopolists in many ways, and really in some sense set the rules and the conditions for their own companies to succeed. So if you take Amazon, for instance, obviously the headquarter in a place where, you know, they capitalize on the sales tax in Washington state, undercutting, you know, book selling companies. And then from there, literally set rules and regulations, capturing rules and regulations through their lobbying efforts to capitalize and corner markets, swallowing up small businesses along the way and becoming more and more powerful such that they now own essentially a market. You can't compete with them. Mm -hmm. Same with Zuckerberg, same with Microsoft. They've captured markets. And because by capturing markets, the wealth will just accrue. Mm -hmm. I guess the concern for all of us is that when you have monopolists take over and set rules, you can become too powerful to fail. 
too powerful in your own right. And that's where it gets into a political question that I want to dive into you is how do billionaires get involved in the political process? Can you talk a little bit about once you've made a decision to get engaged, how do you often see billionaires engaging? So I think what's different about being a billionaire versus even a centimillionaire, someone with $100 million, is at some point, the money becomes unspendable, right? If you have $100 million, you talk to wealth managers, like some people, you know, if you have a totally lavish lifestyle, you could easily spend, you know, $10, $20 million a year on random shit. But when you have 50 billion, I think you begin to rationally understand this is not money. There's only so many yachts in the world. So basically, when you have a lot of money, you begin to understandably think about what you want to do with it that you can't spend. Lots of wealthy people, you know, quite reasonably don't want to give so much to their kids that they're like inevitably fuck them up in ways that, you know, mm-hmm. is probably beyond the scope of this podcast. So you begin to think about quote unquote impact. What do you want your legacy to be in the world? For some people, they're uninterested in politics. They're perfectly fine funding hospitals and you know money to Stanford and Oxford and big ticket items that make them feel good about themselves can make them have some impact on the world. Obviously, you know there's the tax write off, but it's actually relatively rare to see people that want to do full time partisan political combat as we were just talking about. So I would say overall, the median billionaire, as I grossly overgeneralized 700 people, does not get involved in political stuff and is perfectly fine to invest their time and money in charitable work or, you know, quote unquote, impact investing and mm-hmm. socially responsible, blah, blah, blah. And that's what lots of billionaires do. And frankly, I'm generally describing older billionaires. I think lots of younger billionaires, either because they're running their company or because they don't really know what they want to do with it, or they're not quite at the stage in their life where they're on their deathbed pondering their legacy. Lots of times they just store it away and stuff and you figure it out later. So you don't you just don't really do anything with it. In which case it's not that different than being worth, you know, fifty K. <laughs> You're just living your life. And then there are the ones who are willing to get engaged in politics who have what we in the biz would refer to as their donor advisors, which I feel like are a underrated, highly influential network of mostly men, generally speaking. There's a few women in there, but mostly men who are helping guide these billionaires on how to invest their funds in a political enterprise. For sure. And the more that I have interacted with this space as I try and raise funds for my own cause, the more I am stunned at the impact that this group has Mm -hmm. and the ways in which so much of our strategic decision making is driven by this network of, I don't know, 30 or so, in some ways experienced operatives, but often just like dictating the whims of what their billionaires want. Mm -hmm. And I have a strong perspective here that rich people, rich Democratic donors are often the reason that Democrats lose elections. I had come from that from a perspective of like having to ask these people for money all the time. So I am wondering, before I inflect with that, based on your reporting, how do you understand Democratic billionaires in particular to approach their political exercises or their political activities? So over the last four years, right, I mean, a ton of neophytes Mm -hmm. decided that they want to start spending their fortunes getting rid of Trump. And lots of them, as you're pointing out, did not have experience doing this, right? In the Republican world, there are donors who have been doing this for a long time. And in the Democratic world, there are people who have been doing it for a long time, but they mostly came from Wall Street. The folks that I cover in Silicon Valley 
we're all newbies, largely newbies. Mm-hmm. And I think what you saw was people who, you know, made rookie mistakes, uh, right? I mean, that's normal from time to time as you're starting out. But I guess the question, Amanda, is on balance, is it bad for the Democratic Party to have these people involved, even if there's like screw ups that do happen? I guess the question I'd pose is like, what's the alternative? Well, I think I want them to be involved in the right way. I do think that there is some question to be had about why and how Democratic donors, especially in the last four years, have chosen their investment strategies to basically recreate the party outside of the party in a way that the Republicans haven't done. Hmm. Or, you know, you have two minds here. Republicans basically recreated the RNC outside the RNC, but they did it once. Democrats have recreated the DNC outside the DNC about a hundred times in a bunch of different iterations, and some of those stuck. I do think that part of that comes from like the Silicon Valley mindset of having to start your own thing, move fast, break things. It is better to let a thousand flowers bloom. And that is a really bad way to win elections. Yeah. One of the things that was really stressing me out ahead of the 2020 election and shortly after was Reid Hoffman, who is the founder of LinkedIn and one of the biggest Democratic donors in the space. One of his advisors straight up said, win or lose, no matter what happens, we're done playing in politics after 2020. That's a really big problem. And is the kind of thing we saw after 2008 when they elected Obama, a lot of Democratic donors said, I'm done, game over. I don't know, and I'm curious, Teddy, for your thoughts on this. What is it like for some of these folks for whom they were nude after 2016? Are they still engaging in this space? Is it too early to say? Yeah, I mean, Reed's chief political advisor has said on a podcast publicly that he at least himself was not planning to be involved in democratic politics after 2020. The Hoffman shop has not formally said anything. I mean, you, like others, are are not wrong in suspecting based on their previous public comments Mm -hmm. that they're going to scale back their political involvement. Now, to be sure, lots of donors are going to scale back their political involvement after 2020. But I guess the concern in in democratic circles and that I guess you share is the class of donors who were uniquely motivated by Trump, right? They had an objective and they completed the objective of getting rid of Trump. And like the broader question of, am I going to get involved in democratic politics is sort of distinct from getting rid of Trump. Mm -hmm. To be sure, like I don't want to overstate the case here. And there are some democratic donors who do have like a longer standing relationship with the party. Let's take someone like Eric Schmidt, for instance. Yeah. You were on the Hillary campaign. I mean, Schmidt's been involved with stuff since forever. I remember him having a pass to the Obama 2012 headquarters. Staff badge. And like meandering around the office. Sure, in 2012. Yeah. I think he was involved in 08. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're a Democratic strategist, you should feel better about the idea of Schmidt sticking around. He's been there in the pre-Trump years, and he'll be there in the post-Trump years. The donors that I sense that Democrats are most concerned about are the people who just showed up, at least in scale, in 2016 or in 2020 because they were uniquely catalyzed by Trump. And now they don't really, you know, care if it's Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or, you know, Tucker Carlson 2024. They saw Trump as an existential threat to democracy and solved the problem, right? I mean, that's that's the donor that I think most nonprofit and super PAC heads are concerned about. Do you have any specific examples or names that folks might recognize? Of which? Of donors that? Of folks who came up specifically for Trump and maybe weren't politically engaged before this and whether they're sticking around or not. 
Sure. I mean, I think the two that I think jump to mind are Reed and Dustin Moskovitz. I can talk about each of those. Mm-hmm. I mean, so Reed Hoffman, if he had given some money before. Yeah, a little. You know, maybe a couple million a year in the 2012, 2016 cycles. But then, you know, I think always a key milestone in a donor's maturation is when they hire like a full-time advisor. Mm-hmm. So after 2016, Reed Hoffman hired, in fact, a full team. Like There were two or three people around him who were kind of helping him with his political giving. And they spent over $100 million during the 2020 cycle. But they also more broadly were like almost a, an incubation factory for other nonprofits that got involved with Higher Ground Labs, which you're both well familiar with. And they started almost being the port of call for other donors in Silicon Valley. So are they going to stick around now that they've done that? The other person is Dustin Moskovitz, who gave at least $50 million to Democratic super PACs. And at the end of the campaign, I wouldn't be surprised if the actual figure was twice that. Mm-hmm. And you look at money that was given to nonprofits that's not disclosed. Dustin Moskovitz said in 2016, he said publicly that he was not really interested in being a mega donor. In fact, he had like a distaste for kind of partisan political combat, which you guys will not like to hear. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is one of the founders of Facebook and he spent a ton this cycle because he's hyper rational and believes in, you know, assessing every question as mathy and data focused a way as possible. You know, it's born of the effective altruism movement. Yeah. Which we talk about. <laughs> but Dustin Moskowitz saw getting rid of Trump as the rational response to that analysis. Now, would someone like that have the same question if Mitt Romney was the candidate in twenty twelve or, you know, some normal Republican, so to speak, was the candidate in twenty twenty four? You would think the math would spit out a different answer. Well, and full transparency, Reid Hoffman was supportive of Run for Something in the past, has given us six figures worth of donations, and I'm very, very appreciative of it. And I think both Reid and Dustin Moskovitz are examples of the kind of donors I'm getting at, in which while they were very generous with funding organizations and groups doing the work, they also stood up their own shit. They also like created their own organizations, ran their own ad programs fancied themselves as political operatives in a way that I think often maybe didn't necessarily do harm, but surely wasn't an effective use of cash. And it doesn't last. It doesn't last. Yeah. Which is the thing that we've kept coming back to over the course of these conversations is when you're not building something that lasts cycle over cycle, you are missing out on everything from sustained relationships with voters to a place for staff to develop and grow to reducing reliance on consultants. You know, all of this is connected and it comes from these mega donors who are making decisions to often start their own project and then wind it down when they're no longer interested. Sure. I mean, look at, uh, you know, not just Silicon Valley, but obviously with Mike Bloomberg. I mean, Hawkfish is no more. There was a startup out here that I've written about called Alloy, which was a big democratic data startup backed by Hoffman, which has closed. I don't think the expectation was that either of those would be gone after the campaign had ended. But look, billionaires are individual people who have individual thoughts about what they should fund and what should. (laughs) My point is they have their own idiosyncrasies. They have their own beliefs. I think they skew the incentives and the values and the direction. Let's just stipulate they're going to give money anyway. They're going to get involved. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, how are you going to get involved? And are you really helping to advance some of the most important populist fights that this country needs? Or is it, in my mind, sometimes skewing it away from those and really kind of shifting the attention that, quite frankly, oftentimes more comports with the class in society that they're in? These are comfortable issues for me. Those ones are uncomfortable for me. Mm. Therefore, I will tilt towards the comfortable. Sure. 
And if large donors are giving money and tilting the playing field about issues that they find particularly advantageous to their business or to their values, or to their interests, and then therefore dissuade Democrats from what might be more popular populist issues, mm-hmm. let's say expanding you know, Medicare mm-hmm. or raising the minimum wage, right? Those aren't deemed to be the things that the Democratic agenda should be moved on right now. You see how it could change the incentives from the top down, basically. Sure, sure. Right. I mean, if, if there's a policy position that some politician wants to take, but it would piss off, you know, one of the biggest donors, of the Democratic Party, you're going to think about that, right? And you don't become a mega donor in either party by, by right. generally being, you know, anti-capitalist, right? <laughs> yeah. The counter argument is there are issues with total small dollar funding. Mm-hmm. I'm not making it, but this is the argument. There's an encouraging like more extreme rhetoric, right? If you're a believer in the furthest left messaging, you're, you're okay with furthest left rhetoric. But like, let's take this on the right, for instance. If you're a Josh Hawley, right, and you have a big email list, and if by being more extreme, you are more likely to juice that list and get more money, mm-hmm. you might wish that you were more dependent on big donors because then you'd be a more moderate Republican than a far-right Republican, right? So, I mean, look, Every campaign finance system has its own incentives. And if big donors encourage more moderate policy, I understand as progressives, you'd be uncomfortable with their influence. But on the right, you'd prefer conservative donors to have large influence because they tend to moderate the most extreme rhetoric on the right. In theory. It is true that when you're so reliant, as our campaign was on small dollar donors, what you're often mm-hmm. lacking is the consistency of the money. So a small donor based candidate will often surge as you get closer to the election around key dates, you know, closing deadlines, et cetera, will be big bumps of money. And that makes it harder for a campaign manager or staff to plan, Yeah, right. right, to plan accordingly, to have constant spending, if you will, because you don't want to go into debt and you don't know when the big money is going to arrive. A larger donation obviously maintains some degree of spending. So my advice to small dollar donors is that one of the most powerful things you can monthly do donations. for candidates that you support. <laughs> Not only sign in early, but do the monthly contribution. Because when you do the monthly contribution will change the game because now you're looking at essentially, and this is the way I did it on our campaign was, okay, put aside the kind of spurges of money that come in. What's our monthly? Yeah. And I will plan essentially according to the monthly and and, and a little bit on top. Because you know exactly what the monthly is. And you know, like in the month of April, I have- yeah. If all goes to hell, I know I'm getting you know $500,000 next month because of this, right? Right. Just to be really explicit about the numbers here, you know, I ran online fundraising for Hillary. I did it for governor's race before that, and I did it not running it, but on Obama's campaign before that. Generally speaking, a well-run grassroots fundraising campaign will expect half of its money of the quarter in the final week of that quarter. And it will expect half of that money in the final three days and half of that money in the final day and half of that in the final afternoon. It really is a hockey stick in which most of your money that you get over the course of a three-month time period will come in in the final 12 hours of that time period. Wow, okay. When I think about 2016, we raised more money in the final 10 days of the election than we did in all of the 2015 calendar year. That is pretty typical for most campaigns, unless there's like a moment in which you go viral, which is one of the reasons why you have to build a diverse fundraising base that relies both on grassroots donors and major funders, because major funders give you cash you can use to pay your bills in the times in which grassroots donors aren't there. And 
I think that there is a need for the major funders in the democratic space to take into account that there'll be grassroots money at the end. I think this is where the learning curve that you hit on, Teddy, of how new democratic donors over the last four years sort of mm. didn't know that was coming meant that you were throwing a lot of your money around in the final two months of the election that was piling on top of the rage giving that people were doing online. Right. We'll be back with Teddy Schleifer after a short break. Welcome back to Battleground. So, Teddy, it feels like we've had sort of two winding tracks as part of this conversation. There is the argument that we have a problem with the existence of billionaires, that billionaires are skewing the Democratic Party to ultimately pursue anti-populist agendas that then lead to losses in elections. Track number one. Mm -hmm. And then there's track number two, of which we have Democratic billionaire donors who are inconsistent with their funding, setting up their own operations, and acknowledging that grassroots donors solely funding campaigns is maybe not a good path either. Should Democrats pursue a future without billionaire support anyway? Oh, man, how do I cop out of this one as the journalist <laughs> clean to objectivity? I have one idea. Let's see how it goes. I just think it's not realistic, yeah. frankly. I mean, like the system is the way it is. And Democrats in defending like their use of dark money or super PACs love this phrase, we're not going to unilaterally disarm. It was interesting because in, in 2012 and 2016, you saw Democrats be more uneasy about it, I would say. Like there was more debate about, mm -hmm. like remember with 2012, like, you know, should we embrace priorities was like a big storyline. And in 2016, even like there were some Democrats who were like, I don't want to put my thumb on the scale. Citizens United is BS. We need to be better than the Republicans. I feel like in 2020, that internal debate was totally squashed. And you saw like the rise in the left of Things like the 1630 Fund, which was, you know, a major group funneling undisclosed C4 money. You saw a much more Byzantine network of Democratic interest groups that were funneling money between one another and C4s donating to super PACs and a bunch of weird shit. I feel like that debate, to your question, Amanda, about whether or not Democrats should depend on big money, I feel like that debate's been answered. Mm. Democrats have decided that they're not going to unilaterally disarm if folks want to pass legislation that makes Republicans disarm, they can have that debate. But ultimately, I, I don't know if at least in general elections, five might disagree in terms of primaries, but in terms of general elections, the Republican super PAC and C4 machine is firing on all cylinders. I guess the jury's still out about whether or not Democrats can realistically unilaterally disarm. But we haven't seen anyone try. It would have been interesting if Bernie had won to see if a totally small dollar funded candidate could win a general. But Unfortunately, if you're a believer that rich people should have less influence in democratic politics, I think you're kind of swimming upstream because the party has decided. Well, Teddy, that is such a downer to end on. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, no, I think you're right. And I think it's hard because in part, there isn't a good solution to campaign finance reform that rich people can't find their way to work around, at least not one that I've seen. I hope we will get there eventually. I hope. I would just, you know, just chiming in on this for a second. Sure. My belief on this is obviously I want to confront rich donors because of the impact that they have in skewing the priorities of the Democratic Party, right? Mm -hmm. My view on this is if you win and you hold seats, billionaires with money will want to influence you. Mm -hmm. That's just the that's okay. They'll want to put money into politics. They're interested in who has power and how to affect that power. And so 
if the Democrats started from a position of what would help us maintain seats and win seats, in my view, that's the bright and proper question rather than will this offend a large number of wealthy donors? How do we maintain our upper scale donor support? If you start from that question, you're almost pre-negotiating with yourself. Mm. You're walking backwards rather than playing on off and saying, hey, what will help us win the seats? When we win the seats, guess what? People want to have some degree of influence. And we set the terms over how they would engage with us. Well, Faz, I do think that operates in a very idealistic place and that often to win the seats, you need the money. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you have to pay the staff, you have to pay the organizers, you have to run the ads. And especially when you are not starting like Bernie did with a big list, or you're not AOC, or you're not a, a viral candidate, so to speak, right. you do need to ask rich people for money. And then you become a chicken and egg problem. And how do you win seats without appealing to wealthy donors? Once you have the power, will they come get you? Or will they come follow you? Mm -hmm. uh, it's tough to know how to do this without living your values to a certain extent. Feel you. It sucks. Teddy, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to have this conversation. Thanks so much to Teddy Schleifer for joining us on this episode of Battleground. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, which I am sure you did, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this episode. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer, and Christian Castro-Rosell is our executive producer. 